I cannot wait to see what God's going to do with this generation of 20-year-olds. The music that you're seeing used here is written by a very young generation. And it is theologically some of the most accurate stuff I've ever seen. And when you lift it up in song like that to God, God's just, he can't help but blow the doors off from whatever he's doing. Because that's right out of Revelation. Every victory is yours. You overcame. You remember the word for overcome that we looked at in Revelation? Nikao, the word Nike, where Nike gets their name for their shoes to be an overcomer, one who's a conqueror. It's profound stuff when you sing that, that God overcame. What did he overcome? Sin and death. That's what we're going to look at today. In the, in the 1950s, uh, this has nothing to do with the message. In, in the 1950s, post-war, God's movement across the face of the earth was inexplainable. Out of the World War II came things like Youth for Christ, Campus Crusade. God just birthed many ministries around the world. And young men that were coming out of that post-war era couldn't explain it, but God's movement was just profound. And then it happened again, post-Vietnam, 1970s. Some of you who grew up in my generation remember what the Jesus movement was. And it was amazing to be part of that. And then we saw it repeated again post-war in the 1990s after, um, after the war in the Middle East and what God did through the Promise Keepers movement. And now we see it again. This generation of 20-somethings, early 30s, just amazing to watch what God's going to do. I, I, I believe we're in store for some remarkable salvations. We'll just trust God for that. Okay, I told you it had nothing to do with the message. Um, last week, we jumped into this uh, uh, portrait study, the portrait, in which we're looking at the images of God that Jesus paints. John 1.18 says that Jesus explains God the Father. It literally says, no man has seen God at any time, but Jesus explains him. So as we study John, we're seeing what John wrote down about Jesus and how Jesus explains God. Now, if you weren't here last week, um, you might notice when you came in this morning, there were two sets of notes when you came in. One is last week's message, condensed down into a, a front and back side piece of paper, if you happen to grab that. And the other one is today's notes, which are blanks that you can fill in along the way. And there were only 300 of them, so I think we probably ran out. If you didn't get one, you can get them online. And if you, if you happen to be listening online right now or you're catching the podcast, you'll see two sets of notes today. I don't know if you guys here knew that. We have lots of people that listen online and through podcasts. So that's why there's two sets of notes so you can get caught up. Take last week's notes and just tuck it away in your Bible and look at it later. It will really help you understand the study of John and where we're headed with this. I framed it this way by making this statement. How you view God... Your personal view of God determines what you do next. And by that I mean this. Your concept of what you believe God to be, whom you understand him to be, determines whom you will eventually marry or your jobs that you will take, your investments that you will make. And I want to explain it this way. Let me show you a passage on screen that helps illustrate that. This comes from John 10.32. And this is a point at which some individuals thought they understood God, but didn't really understand God. Jesus answered, and he's talking to some guys who want to kill him. 
Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. See, their view of God affected what they did next. They're ready to take action because they believed God couldn't inhabit a man. That was their view of God. So how you view God really does determine what you do. It plays out in your life. That frames this study for us very well. It's the most profound truth in the universe that God became man. So simple it can be understood by a child. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's what we looked at last week. God and Jesus one, the Word being Jesus. The one came to earth. So the deity of Jesus, Jesus being God, is fundamental to everything that we believe, everything that we understand. And that's what we looked at in depth last week, those brush strokes on the canvas. First of all, to get it straight that Jesus is God. The eternal, infinite God became man. That's why Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one, symbiotic. We are the same. Now let's take a little bit of background and step back again. Let's remember where John is at. He's in the city of Ephesus. Most theologians, most commentators believe that John was probably around 96, 95 years of age when this was written, this book of John, after he was on the island of Patmos. There's some commentators that believe that he might have written it when he was in his 70s before he was on the island of Patmos. What's significant about that? The island of Patmos is where he wrote the book of Revelation. So everything that we studied previously this last year was done, I believe, and from most commentators believe, was done before he wrote this book of John. When you read the first chapter of John in its entirety, you look at it and say, wow, this guy has had some amazing experiences. He's writing, obviously, in the power of this Holy Spirit, but the way that he articulates who Jesus is is just beyond the human mind to comprehend, yet it's so simplistic a child can understand it. It's so amazing. Now, we've got a couple images here to look at. I want you to understand where Ephesus is at, modern-day Turkey today. Some of you in the church have been there. Uh, Ephesus sits right on the side of the Mediterranean Ocean, far western side of the nation of what we call Turkey today. So Ephesus is still a historical place that you can go to. Matter of fact, there's many archaeological ruins that are found there. It was the center and, and, uh, at that period of time when John lived there of intellectual philosophical thinking. And so they built great libraries. When the library at Alexandria in Egypt was destroyed, all the great works, the great literary works of the world were brought to this library in Ephesus. It's called the Library of Seleucus or Seleucus. So this is the environment from which John was in when he was writing this intellectual piece of property, 1 John chapter 1, to help people understand and get it in their head who this God-man who Jesus was, and it's profound writing. So we have archaeological evidence and we have extra-biblical evidence that all point to John being somewhere in his mid-90s, probably after he was on the island of Patmos, and probably dictating to some younger men to write the things that he said. 
So where we left off at last week was the last part of verse 3 in which it said all things were made through him. And I told you we're going to step into that this week and see how this took place. And I assure you, this one is going to make your brain hurt today because it's just, wow. So let's go to verse 4, John chapter 1 and verse 4. If you're new to New Hope, you'll find Bibles in the pews racks in front of you. Those are there for your benefit if you don't own a Bible. You can also take it with you today if you'd like to, if you need a copy of God's Word. We really want you to have that in your hands. So feel free to own that and take it with you when you leave, no cost. John chapter 1 and verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. Therefore... In the beginning, since Jesus is from the beginning of time, before anything else existed, he and the Father are one. Before anything else but God, there was already life. Life already existed. That's a very important point. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. So this first brushstroke we see this morning, this image of God, this truth, is that God is self-existent. He contains life within himself. He is not dependent upon anything else. He is life, and that's a foundational truth. So there's a couple words in the Greek language that represent life, and we should get these down so we understand what's being discussed here. This this word life has two meanings. First of all, the word zoe. You see the definition there, spiritual life, the state of vitality, one who is animate, every living soul. So you are spiritual beings. You have a soul. You have a consciousness. So therefore, you are zoe. The next one that's used is the word bios. You're very familiar with that. In biology, that's where the root of the word is from. Bios, meaning physical life. Can you separate the two? Which life are we talking about when it says, in him was life? So we understand that mankind has bios, life, and zoe life, we are spiritual beings with a biological body. But Scripture tells us that God is spirit. We understand that mankind is bios and spirit because he gave us this being to dwell within. Here's the best way for you to understand that. Look with me up on the screen at Genesis 2-7. This says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. If you make your living in the medical world, you're probably very familiar with this particular word that's used first here, because when it says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, it's the word nafa. And here's the definition for that, inflate, to blow hard. So if you're a medical practitioner, you understand in in the practice of CPR, You're inflating someone's lungs. You're practicing nephah, the biological side. But we also see here the word that's used is neshama. He breathed into him, nephah, neshama, the breath of life. The definition for that, a vital breath, divine inspiration, the intellect, the soul, the consciousness. So we've got both. God gave us the biological being. At some point, God breathed into Adam. His lungs began to expand. His heart began to begin beating. His brain waves started clicking, and he became a living being according to Scripture. So we see that if we get rid of the creator and we get rid of creation, 
like the world has done, then we remove this element that we've just looked at because Scripture says emphatically that life comes from God. In Him was life, and He gave it to us. This is the most important truth that I can find in Scripture about God's nature, and it is the most assaulted truth in your world today, that God is not the creator. Rather, God is the one who might be out there, according to atheists, but probably not. You probably morphed from goo, up from the goo, man arose. That's not what Scripture says. See, if you get rid of creation, you get rid of creator, then that leaves individuals completely free to live however they want because there's no creator to be accountable to. But Scripture says there is one who, nafa, into your lungs, your forefathers, and gave us the nashama, gave us the spiritual life, So all creation, every single one of you, myself included, have received a soul from God. We're not just a biological being. We have eternity within us. We arrive at life from God. However, God has life within himself. He doesn't need anything else. He is self-existent. It's what theologians call a seity. Here's a way to understand this. Think of the very last miracle that Jesus performed. While Jesus is alive on earth, the very last miracle he performed before he died, it was this. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And with that he died. Can you do that? Absolutely not. We are not God. We do not have life within ourselves, self-existent. Now, whether or not you believe that's Jesus' last miracle, you can talk to me about that later. But I find that to be absolutely profound because I can't say to my heart, stop beating. I can eat too much pizza and make it stop beating, okay? But Jesus surrendered his spirit willingly, so much so that the Roman soldiers were shocked and they put a spear into his side just to make sure. And sure enough, water and blood both gushed out, confirming that he was dead. He willingly gave up his own life. He surrendered it. Man did not take it from him. That's a truth of Scripture. So God himself, in which all life exists, controlled himself even at the cross, the God-man. So what's the implication of this? This is a profound truth. I know we're spending a lot of time in this first section of this verse that it really helps. This is profound because this implication says that life, God, gave rise to matter. Protons, neutrons, atoms did not give life to life. Life gave life to matter. Do you understand the difference? There was some point in time in which only God existed. Life in itself is life. And at some point, that life said, I speak into existence matter. It's all created substance. The cork here, the metal here, the pews you sit in, everything has been created from the creator. So you can't separate it according to Scripture. Life gave rise to matter. Matter did not give rise to life. That's what we see right here. And that is the great division between those who believe in no God or take an atheistic view or those who embrace evolution. They would say that you rose up from the goo. God says, no, I gave you life. I formed man and spoke life into man. So you'll find as we work through John, there is no argument whatsoever for God's existence. 
It's assumed, just like all the other biblical writers. First life, then physical matter and energy. In the beginning was the Word, and in Him was life. Okay, let's move on. So truth, first, the third truth there that we find, once there was only life, life created matter. So here's another implication of that. That one who possesses life can impart life to me. Because Scripture says in Ephesians, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. If I was dead, then I need life to be brought back again. God gives that life. For that reason, Jesus Christ came into the world. That's what he said, right? John 10.10. I came that they may have life and have it a little abundantly. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the life giver. And he says that life was the light of men. This is what it says in Scripture. 1 John 5.11, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So if you have him, you have life. If you reject him, you reject life. So why does John say this life was the light of men? I think as I look at this, He's trying to give us the best analogy he can because we understand light and darkness. Everybody here, close your eyes, if you don't mind. Okay, now open them slowly. Light entered your eyes, right? We can understand light and darkness. It makes sense to us. It does not make sense when we walk up to someone whom we believe to be spiritually dead and say, you're dead. They'd say, you're crazy. I'm not dead. I'm walking. I'm a living being. But we understand because we look at it through God's eyes to say that those who do not have Christ don't have life, and they're living in darkness. So life brings light. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you receive Jesus, when you proclaim him to be your Savior, you not only get forgiveness of sins, You get the light of the world to shine within you so that you can understand these things that are written here, that the Holy Spirit's work makes sense to you. It's the greatest deal in the world. Do you get that? I think, really, I really want you to get this because I think those of us who've grown up in church, and many, I'm speaking to many of you, if you've grown up in church since you were a child, you've heard this for years, and there's a temptation to just kind of yawn. I've heard this before. (laughs) No, it's worthy of being repeated over and over and over and over and over again. God, who is the originator in the beginning when nothing else existed, stepped through the fabric of time and decided to bring life to those who are dead because we live in a world of darkness. So we have to let the massiveness of this overwhelm us. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So we've got the origin of life, this light, At some point, we understand somewhere around 1 AD, maybe 4 BC, Jesus stepped through the curtain of time into this world. The originator of all life came into our world, stepping through the veil and being part of our world. And it was the dawning of a brand new day. First thing God did when he formed the world, Genesis 1-3, he said, let there be Light. First thing God did when he sends the sun, 
who steps into the world says, I'm going to give light to the world. Old creation, new creation. God does it by bringing light into the world. I want to show you this, and it's not going to be up on the screen. If you don't mind turning in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Flip over there a few pages. I'll give you a minute to catch up. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is worth underlining in your Bible. This is Paul writing about Genesis 1, 3, speaking about God bringing light into the world and tying it to Jesus the way that I just did. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts. Get that first sentence there? For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, he's speaking of Genesis 1-3, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Old creation, new creation. Both bring light into the world. And we're told that despite Satan's furious assaults on the light, the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, if you've got an NIV version of the Bible or an NASB, you might want to write just above that the word overcome. Because the word overcome is a more literal translation of that word comprehend or understand. Understand and comprehend are are a more modern translation of that Greek word. And I'll explain that for you. If you look up on the screen, you'll see the word katalambano. Katalambano is a Greek word that means to seize, to apprehend, or to overtake. So when this was written by John, he said the darkness did not katalambano it. It did not seize it and snatch it away. It did not overcome it. It did not conquer it. Now, it may also, it can have be a double conundrum, a, a double entendre. It could have also the meaning. They didn't comprehend it. But I think from what I see in Scripture, that the evil spirits, Satan really understands who Jesus is. Look with me up on the screen. You're going to see a point at which a couple demon-possessed men approached Jesus, screaming at him because they understood who he was. Matthew 8, 29 And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? These are men who were demons possessed that were in a cemetery screaming at Jesus because they didn't want to be punished prematurely. They recognized him and knew who he was. That's why James wrote, The demons also believe and shudder because the demon world understands who Jesus is. But they could not overcome him. They could not conquer him. It's because they understand with total clarity what awaits them. They try desperately to extinguish Jesus, but he triumphed at the cross. Old Testament, Satan tried to wipe out the line of Israel. New Testament, Satan tried to wipe out Jesus by killing those babies at birth through King Herod. But Jesus triumphed at the cross, and no longer can darkness overcome the light. This is what we're told in, second, in Colossians 2. Look with me on the screen, Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Wow. He took it all away. How far does God separate your sin? As far as the east 
is from the West, and he remembers it no more. He nailed it to the cross. So it's been eliminated. The darkness cannot grasp it and seize it and destroy it. God conquered it. So now John, take, John the disciple takes a little bit of a rabbit trail, and he writes about John the Baptist. You'll catch that in verse 6. We're not going to spend much time here, but let's look at the verses first. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He means John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There came, meaning he's no longer talking about the word, capital W, Jesus. He's now talking about a man, a man who was the forerunner, who announced he's like a newsboy standing on the corner. Hey, there's one coming, and he's great. He's the Messiah. And when he comes, I'll point him out to you. That was John's job. He's the announcer. He's the one that specifically Scripture promised would come. Uh, We'll get into this next week, but there's four specific ways you can recognize that John the Baptist was really the forerunner. I've got him in your notes today, and you'll see him on the screen as well. First of all, he fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah's forerunner. Everything that was written about him, John the Baptist fulfilled. Number two, his birth was miraculous. His parents were old. They'd never had children, and yet... They had John in their old age. And number three, an angel came to tell Zacharias, your son is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And the fourth one, John was filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll see this next week. It's one of the coolest passages in Scripture. But John's father, Zacharias, prophesied over him. And it is a beautiful work of literary art in which he talked about what John would become. And John became great, John the Baptist. So great that Jesus actually said about John the Baptist, there is no one greater born among women than John. And John said to people in return, you think I'm great? I can't even untie his Nikes. I'm not worthy. I can't even bend over and untie Jesus' sandals. He is so great. But we'll look at that more next week. Verse 9 says this, there was the true light, and so John's coming back into his focus again. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The word that's used there is alethanos. And rather than giving you the dictionary version this time, I'm giving you the Greek lexicon. So the Greek lexicon is like a commentary on a word. Look at what it says about this word true, alethanos. What is real and genuine, that which has not only the name, but the real nature corresponding to the name. So if you pick up a piece of oak, you really expect it to be a piece of oak, not a piece of veneered particle board, right? You go to some furniture stores and it says oak furniture, but it's actually veneer over particle board. This word alethanos is speaking of whatever has the name is really what it is. Jesus, the light, is really the light. So there was the true light, the alethanos light. God's people have seen reflections of this light throughout time. Moses saw it. Jonah saw it. Abraham saw it. Glimpses. But Jesus was the full representation of the light. That's what Scripture says. He's the radiance of God's nature. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. 
you not find it profound that John the Baptist actually had to point out Jesus? The world was so dark, so thick with blackness and sin, that there actually had to be a forerunner that would say, that's him, that's the one. This one sent from God, the forerunner, actually had to point out. I would think he would be blazing because Scripture says he's the full radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And yet, people didn't get it. They didn't understand because they couldn't see the light because of the blindness of their eyes. So it says here in verse 9 that this light enlightens every man. And that's confusing when you compare it to verse 5. Because verse 5 says people didn't comprehend it. But here it says it enlightens every man. And here's the best way to understand that. If a physician holds up, let's say it's a scientist that's developed some serum for a flu, and holds up the serum and says, this vaccine that I have will cure the flu for everyone. We understand it to mean that the existence of the serum or the vaccine doesn't automatically cure everyone. You have to receive it within you to fight against the antibodies. So what this is literally saying is those who receive it, those who literally take it within, this truth enlightens every man who receives it and brings it in. So you understand that that's a great illustration for us to really take this in, that this is not saying that there's universalism, that Jesus died once and everybody is saved, It's everyone who receives the truth and accepts it. So it says the world did not know him. John announced Jesus. Jesus himself is present. Jesus is performing miracles constantly. People are coming to him by the thousands. He's feeding thousands. And yet the world did not know him. I'm totally perplexed by this. But here's why. The heaviness, the darkness of sin is so thick and so black. All they saw was a good man. Like people see today. He was a good man. He was a historical figure. The light of the world. Do you ever meet someone or have someone in your family that you want to just take by the shoulders and say, why can't you get this? Why don't you see this? Does Satan work overtime to keep people in blindness? Absolutely. I had a young lady I sat with last year, about 20 years old, and I'm showing her all these things, trying to help her to understand it, to get it in her head, and I swear I might as well have been just showing her a blank piece of concrete. She could not get it because she could not see it. The blindness was so profound. This is what Scripture says about this. Paul wrote this specifically, 2 Corinthians 4, 3. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now understand this. Just because there's no desire does not excuse those of the world who do not accept Jesus. It is inexcusable. Even those who never become children of God are accountable for the knowledge of God. And this really messes some people up. I heard Oprah Winfrey say, this is the passage of Scripture that she struggles with most, and it caused her to leave the church because she could not believe that God would reject people who are living in another world where they've never heard of Jesus. 
But God says we have knowledge within ourselves of God the creator. He's placed it within our conscience and he's placed it within all creation so that we are without any excuse. Look with me up on the screen, Romans 1.19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, your conscience, your thinking, it's evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That is a tragic reality, that sinners knowingly reject the light of truth. That's what we're told. They reject the light of the world. And you would say, how can you say that, Mark? I don't. That's what God's Word says. Literally, this is what it says in John 3.19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So we're told that people willingly reject the light, even though God has placed it within their heart. And it's astounding. For those of us who have the light within us, who have the knowledge of the truth of Scripture, and look around and say, can't you see his fingerprints all over this place? Everything that we have speaks of the Creator. But Scripture says they willingly reject until one day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. That's what Scripture also says. So this rejection is only for a period of time. Verse 11, this begins to wrap it up. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. I believe that broke John's heart to write that. That sentence that you just saw. Why? Because John's a Jew. He was raised Jewish. He was raised in the synagogues. He came to the point where he saw the light and understood, but yet he's saying he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Think of this church and how this applies to the United States of America. All the spiritual advantages of the heritage that had been handed down to them from generation to generation a nation that was founded upon the principles of God, which would be a nation that would be looking for a Redeemer and Messiah, were so black in their mind, blinded to the light, they could not even see it when he arrived. We live in a nation which was built upon the principles of God with a Redeemer, Savior, which is very slowly turning its back and becoming a nation of blindness. We apply ourselves to the same situation and say, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And it's a great tragedy. But Israel one day will come to the light. We understand from Scripture they're going to come to an understanding. So if we look at this and say, okay, the world rejected him, the world's blind, and his own nation, his own people rejected him, how in the world then does light triumph? How does God get his principle across Verse 12 and 13 answer this. This is how we're going to end today. Verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
You might want to circle the word but right after verse 12, uh, right after the beginning of verse 12, but as many. Circle the word but there because it's, it's a very small but, but it's a conjunction. And it means, okay, the world's rejected him, his nation has rejected him, but God's purposes will not be defeated. And it marks a dramatic shift. And it says here, but as many as received him. So how do you become born of God? How do you receive him? We talked about this in Titus just a couple weeks ago in the fifth week of our study of Titus. We talked about this phrase called the palingenesia. Palin or palin meaning from above, genesia meaning new creation. Palingenesia means literally born again, born of God. We've got a new beginning. It's the washing and the regeneration that takes place when God's Holy Spirit convicts us and begins drawing us to God, and we say, I get it. I understand who he is. It makes sense to me. I need forgiveness of my sins so that I can have this new life, so that I can dwell with him eternally. It's the palingenesia. You might see the definition on the screen. Genesis, spiritual rebirth, figuratively, spiritual renovation. So it's not the old nature altered in some way. It's a complete new beginning, new birth from above. That's why he says we're born again. So this is God's answer. God's answer to deadness is not to alter your old life. It's to give you a complete new beginning, forgiving everything in the past and giving you a completely new life. So this word that's used here, this last one I want to wrap up on, is the word to receive, but as many as received him. The word is lambano, and it means to reach out and take hold of with the intention of not letting go, to grasp or seize. It's not an intellectual believing it's a grasping and seizing onto, to obtain it. So John states this so plainly that no one would come to believe in God if it was left up to us on our own. It's all through the work of the grace and mercy of God. He draws us in. And so we're born not of flesh, not born of the works of man, that's what he's saying here, literally. We're not born of flesh, not of our racial system, not of our ethnic heritage, not just because we're an American, not just because we're a Jew, but rather born of God. And it's the work of God's grace that draws us in. So here's the last truth for you today. Receiving and believing in Jesus Christ is not the work of man. It's the work of God and his Holy Spirit drawing you in. Because Scripture says that no man seeks after God on his own. So if you're here today and you are a believer, you should be doubly thankful because God chose you and drew you into himself through the work of his Holy Spirit. He's drawing you to himself, and it is a mystery. We don't understand it, but God says there is no life apart from Christ. And if you want life, you have to receive Christ. So here's how we become a child of God. There's some point when each of us literally were blind to the understanding of God, living in darkness. And at some point, God began what I would call the tugging, tugging on your heart, whether through some life circumstances, job loss, family member loss, things just going bad in your life, 
or a realization through working through scripture, God's been tugging on your heart. And at some point, the palingenesia began and the Holy Spirit is working upon your soul. And whether you went to a pastor or you went to the word of God, it's on its own. You came to a point where the shingles came off your eyes and the blindness was replaced with the light of life. And Jesus invaded your life. And that's how he says we're born into the kingdom of God, children of the king, born of God. It's profound, church. I know you've heard this many times, but it's profound. It's worth shouting about when you shout during worship because this is what he did for you. So a question for you this morning, especially if you're visiting here, maybe this is the first time you've heard this. Can you find yourself in the family photo? This portrait that's being painted of God, all the imagery of it, and he says we're his children, so if there's a family photo, we're in there. But I wonder if you could find yourself in there. Can you point and say, yeah, I can point to a period of time when I named Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Or if you've never done that, I'd love to settle that with you today. You've come to an end point where you've understood and God's been tugging on your heart through what you've heard this morning. Don't let that go by. Allow God to work upon your heart. Give in to that tugging. Further investigate this. You want to talk to me after the service? I'd be thrilled to do that with you. But in the meantime, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to ask those of you who are believers to pray along with me. Would you do that? Father, I believe that you've given illumination this morning, understanding of the principles of truth that no one is saved apart from Jesus Christ and he is the light of life. You said the only way that we can have life is by having Jesus in our life. Otherwise, we're dead in our sins. Father, I thank you that you caused John to write this stuff down a couple thousand years ago and that you worked through him through the power of your spirit to give us understanding it is beyond man's ability to write like this, God. So we look at it and say, it's from you. And you've given us understanding of it this morning. So we yield and say, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing here in this church, calling people to yourself. God, we ask that you would take these truths, root them so deeply in us that we can't help but speak about them this week. Make us bold on behalf of your kingdom. I pray for those right now, Father, who are in this room that may not have relationship with you, and I lift them up to you asking that you would not give them rest until they can resolve this issue in their life. Cause them, Father, to be drawn into this new birth that you describe. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.